And we're back. Welcome to the Mercy Cast, where we're learning the art of compassion through the adversity of life. I'm your host, Raleigh Sadler. When we think about poverty, it's very easy to feel paralyzed. What do we do? How do we respond? Oftentimes, we are just mystified. We don't know what to do. And in doing that, there's often a misunderstanding of the privilege that we bring to the table. Because when you're experiencing poverty, you're seeing it on the ground floor. You are living with it. And what many will say as they are experiencing poverty is that it's not just a material poverty, but it's often a poverty of being a spiritual poverty. There's more going on. There's a poverty of relationship. There's a holistic issue, and it requires a holistic answer. Josiah spent the bulk of his childhood jumping back and forth between the land of his birth, Yande, Cameroon, and the land of his family, central Pennsylvania. In Cameroon, the poverty was in your face. There were piles of garbage on dirt roads with mud huts with tin roofs. In Hershey, Pennsylvania, the poverty was camouflaged in manicured lawns and the smell of chocolate in the morning breeze. But somehow, the issue of homelessness found him in both. In Cameroon, it was a young child who would regularly plead with his family for a scrap of food by clanging a rock on the metal bars of the security wall that surrounded his cinder block home. In Pennsylvania, it was through a Vietnam veteran who would go with his family to church and stay after to eat and watch football. As a result, he was forced to reconcile with his own privilege at a much younger age than most. This is the tension that he brings into his work every day as the CEO of City Relief. Today, I am joined by Josiah Haken, the author of Neighbors with No Doors, The Truth About Homelessness and How You Can Make a Difference, and the CEO of City Relief, a mobile outreach organization that connects with unhoused individuals in the New York City, New Jersey area. Josiah, welcome to the Mercy Cast. Thanks for having me. In your story, I'm struck by this juxtaposition of poverty and privilege. How do we live with both things active in our lives? It's not easy. It's really not easy. I was the white kid in Cameroon. I would leave the house and I would have small children, local children, who would follow me around yelling, Ntangen, 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 which was the local language you wondo for white person, white person, white person. And so it was... So they're reminding you. Oh, ever, in case I forgot, you know. But it was one of those dynamics where I was constantly aware of this divide. There was me in my Americanness and my whiteness that yeah. was surrounded by people who, who had so much less, but in many ways, so much more. And because there's a moreness that also happens when people are living day to day and living with their needs not being met, their physical needs not being met in a, in an adequate way that forces, I think a depth of interaction with other people that it creates a value proposition for their community life and their engagement with others. That's so valuable. Then on top of that, when I was in high school, we moved back, my parents moved back to Hershey, Pennsylvania. And so I went in as a freshman in high school and just felt, you know, very alone in a world where I looked like everybody else. Like I actually, I, on, if you took a picture of me 
with my classmates and with everybody around my family, there would be nothing abnormal about it. But, but inside I'm like, man, I, this is not the life that I, am, I was used to. So just juxtaposing those two dynamics really forces you to consider like, what about my privilege and what about my background and what about my status? And like, how does that interact with people of means and people with, without me, financial means? And what is my role in, in bringing restoration and, and bringing hope into both settings? So yeah, it's been, it's not easy because it, it for, there's constant tension. If I, if I sat here and I pretended like I had it figured out and I'd landed the plane, right. I'd be lying. Yeah. Uh, so, but because it, it's constant process. Well, and it's interesting to me that you talk about this idea of people who have so much less, but so much more. When we think about this idea of poverty of being, spiritual poverty, material poverty, emotional poverty, all these, if when people are experiencing poverty on a holistic level, where does the moreness come in? From my observation, the moreness comes in through prioritization. What's really important? What really matters? And what I've seen in, in, in my childhood in Cameroon and then what I've seen now in my work with, with folks who are experiencing homelessness in New York City and New Jersey for the last 13 years is a depth of understanding about the, the finite nature of life and how it forces you to come to grips with your own mortality and your own existential existence if that's a maybe redundant <laughs> redundant expression but just this idea of t- talking to people so, so for example talking to people in the street oftentimes i come away with just inspiration at their level of faith they have so much faith and yet they have so little in terms of possessions they have so little to to hope for in terms of everything is stacked against them but yet they're still there. So one of the most common responses I get in the street when I say, hey, how are you doing? Many people will say, well, God woke me up this morning. And that is enough. And they have a pure gratitude and a pure awareness of the fact that even life itself, just being, is a value. There is value and richness in being in spite of all the trappings and all of the bells and whistles that might be missing from that, from that existence. Well, it's interesting. There's a level of presence there that when we have all the bells and whistles, we may not be present because we're distracting ourselves. We're distracting ourselves from the things that we don't want to deal with. We're in denial. We're not accepting anything. But when you do not have those things that you can run to, you will find other ways to distract yourself or you might have to face a couple of things. And I've noticed as I've engaged people who may be living on the street, they may be unhoused. I've noticed that many of the people that I would talk to, as you actually just start to build a relationship with them, not just throw money at them and feel good about yourself as you walk away, but actually get to know them and become friends, you start to realize that the person I'm talking to actually has a network of friends and they're seeing parts of the city that I would never see because my AirPods are in and I'm distracted. But they're open and they're coming up with, hey, you know, these people could use someone to talk to or here's some issues in this neighborhood. It's like the eyes on the ground, like and some people would just walk by and not even understand the immense value that their neighbor, their unhoused neighbor brings to the table. 
Yeah. And the word that comes to mind for me is community, right? So like if you look at the, the, the poverty in Cameroon, which is a developing country, they have such a wealth of community in terms of taking care of each other, looking out for their neighbor's best interest. And I've seen that in the streets as well. Homeless people are some of the most generous people in the world. You have no, no idea how many times I've offered someone a brand new pair of socks and they said, oh, that's great. I, I don't need them, but my friend does. And, and I've watched them take a pair of socks and go and give it to the, the person that couldn't get over because they have mobility issues. One of my first friends that I've made in the street was a guy named Pagan, who was, in the, was a heroin addict in, in the South Bronx. And he would get a container of soup that we were out of the soup you're we giving, and he would always carry it to the little tent community that he was living in because they were elderly. There were like three or four guys who were in this community who couldn't move very well. And, and so Pagan was always very intentional about taking soup back to them, taking bread back to them, taking toiletries back to them. And so there's this dynamic of loving your neighbor that so many people in poverty, in financial poverty, struggle with. But that, I mean, not don't struggle with, there, there's an element of community and generosity that people with less physical wealth understand, I think, and you're more generous with than people who have lots of wealth and lots of financial resources who tend to become more isolated. It's like the more stuff you have, sometimes the more lonely you become. Well, and I love as we're talking about this in terms of privilege and poverty, it's when we look at the, the birth of the church the first several chapters of Acts, so many church planters will say, you know, we want to have a church like the church in Acts. Well, that church was a vulnerable church. It was full of people who were just struggling to keep the lights on. It was full of people who didn't know where the next meal would come from. And everyone was equal in a sense. They were all vulnerable. It's when we separate ourselves from that vulnerability, when we insulate ourselves from our vulnerable neighbors, that one, we don't recognize our own vulnerability or our own privilege, and we don't recognize how both of them are informing how we're caring for our neighbor. But what I love about the early church is that everyone is giving to everyone as they have need. And when we are working with our neighbor who, and getting to know them and having a relationship, because relationship is key, it's so easy just to throw money at a problem. And I'm not saying I'm a case-by-case basis guy. Sometimes I feel like, you know what? I'm going to give this person a few dollars. But I also know that's not going to solve the problem because this is a person created in God's image who should have relationships with people. This is a person who could be a friend. But here's the thing. I'm not coming at this as the savior. There's already one of those. I'm coming at it from the perspective of, I want to be friends with this person. Maybe God speaks to this person into my life, most likely. And so I'm just one vulnerable person talking to another vulnerable person. My issues may differ, but people are people. And I think when we have that mindset, it changes the game. Because now I can't insulate myself from my own issues. I have to understand this person's issues are exposed. Mine are hidden, but we both have them. 100%. And I love how uh, Tim Keller talks about this a lot in his, in his book, Generous Justice. Um, just amazing how he sort of summarizes that particular dynamic where he says that Jesus calls us to be uh, poor in spirit. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And 
and uh, Tim goes on to to talk about how too many Americans are are middle class in spirit, um, and because the the poor in spirit, if you're truly poor in spirit, you recognize that there's nothing you can do, there's nothing you've done to earn favor with God. You can't improve your 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 standing by doing this or doing that. That God's love is a, is a just complete grace. It's a complete gift as is. And he said that when people who understand that see someone who's financially poor, um, we recognize that we're looking into a mirror because that person like this. So this idea of the deserving and the undeserving poor is completely unbiblical. Right. Absolutely. Because we almost want people to show their credentials that they are officially in a bad spot. Through no fault of their own. Right. As though if it was their fault, then they don't deserve to have my compassion or my generosity. And, you know, so that's the thing that I've, I've seen over the years where the perspective of helping people and the perspective of serving people changes once you start realizing that you're not serving those people. Those, there is, as one of my co- former colleagues used to always say when we were about to load up our bus with soup and socks and stuff to drive into the city or go to outreach, she would always say, there is no us and them. There's just us. There is no us and them. There's just us. And it's it's so hard, though, for a lot of us because, again, we see things through this lens that, I mean, it's myopic. It's small. It's not holistic. We see someone on the streets and we're like, well, what did they do to get there? You know, many people on the streets can be targeted for an infinite amount of types of exploitation, but often traffickers will traffic people from the streets. And what's interesting is when I speak to churches about this, they'll say, well, where are all these people who are trafficked? And I say a couple of things. One, they're hidden in plain sight right behind your assumptions. But two, it's the people that you villainize in your community that are often victimized. Because who's going to go after them? We infer upon people a narrative without listening to their story. And I think one of the things that's so important about your work, not only your work chronicled in your book, but also your work with City Relief, is that so much of this work is based on listening, sitting down with people, advocating for people, because now you care for the person. When you care for someone, people don't have to ask you to advocate. You are already breaking down doors just to get them services and care. And if they need shoes, you're getting them shoes because now their pain has become personal to you. If it's not personal, it's, it's, I think it was, I don't know if it's Brian Stevenson in his book, Just Mercy, or, but he talks a lot about proximity in that book, which I thought was really important. And like just the expression, and I'm probably, he may be quoting somebody else or I might be misquoting him. I don't know. But just the idea of it's hard to hate someone up close. Right. Like it's if, if you're close to somebody, it's it's really difficult to 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 hate them, to judge them when you understand what they're going through, when you empathize with their challenges, when you know that, you know, this person ended up in the situation at a young age. I mean, one another another story that comes to mind is a guy who I met who he was like in his 40s. I tell his story in my book, but this is a guy who was homeless in his 40s, alcoholic, and I was trying to get him into detox. And I ended up asking him along the way on the journey as just talking through his story and listening to him. I said, when did you start? When did you become homeless? When did you end up in the streets? And, and when did you start drinking? When did, you, when, did, when did alcohol become an issue? And he said the same answer for both questions is 13. I was 13 years old. Because when he was a kid, his mom 
was dating a guy who would abuse him and they would drink. And so he started sharing his drinks with this 13 year old kid who he was abusing. And then he would end up attacking him, beating him up, assaulting him. And, and as this 13 year old, well, it started when he was younger, but as he became 13, he started fighting back against this, his mom's boyfriend. And he didn't like that. The boyfriend didn't like that at all. So boyfriend says to mom, well, you either need to kick your son out or I'm leaving. And she chose to kick her son out to keep the roof over her head and to keep the boyfriend because of trauma that she experienced when she was young. So like there's these dynamics where you're talking to this guy. Now, when the average person who walks by that guy says, oh, that's just an alcoholic. That's just an addicted homeless guy. So he needs to just get clean. He needs to just get off alcohol and then maybe we can talk about helping him or he can get a life that he was, you know, that he, that he would want to pursue. But in reality, the alcohol is a symptom. In that situation, the alcohol is a coping mechanism for deep, deep rejection, deep, deep trauma, deep, deep pain. And so this idea of like, once you start to see people through the lens of empathy, it's really hard to judge them. It's really hard to condemn them. And that's where, as a follower of Jesus, I'm like, well, duh. Like, this is all that Jesus talked about. Right. Like, I think of the guy who's like, you know, his disciples come to Jesus. So he's this blind guy who sinned, this man or his parents. Tell us, Jesus, who's to blame for this guy's misfortune? It's clearly somebody's fault. It's either his fault or his parents' fault. And Jesus doesn't even says, no, you guys are missing the whole point. You're missing it. This, and he heals them and says, may God be glorified by this healing. So there's this dynamic of engaging with people who are struggling and and suffering where when we come at that, when we come at that situation with judgment and condescension, we miss out on the kingdom of God. Mm. And and if we are followers of Jesus, and that's why I think going back to your comment about acts in the the church, like how, what what a great lesson it would be for the American church to recognize that it wasn't, what if, I'll just have to ask a hypothetical, what if one of the reasons the church was able to survive those early years of persecution was because they cared for the poor, because they shared their resources, because they were generous and they were in community with one another? Like, what if there's a direct correlation between the outpouring of the spirit and the power of God and the obedience of Christians to see, engage, empathize, and love their marginalized neighbors. Because if that's the case, then one could ask the question, is the reason why the American church suffering right now in terms of people running for the exits and all the, all the, the stuff that's come out with, with abuse and all this stuff. What if, what if, what if they're connected? And we said the the best way for the church of, of Jesus to be resurrected in America is not to preach more sound theology or not to build more marketing campaigns, but to go serve the poor, go love the marginalized, go sit in solidarity with those who are hurting. And if we actually did that, what would we see a resurrection? Would we see a rebirth, a renaissance of the, uh, or an outpouring of the spirit that we've ne- that we've never seen because we are actually living out this key component of the scriptures and it's from Genesis to Revelation that God's heart beats for the broken 
Well, and it's so interesting to me because we can focus on the proclamation of the gospel at the expense of the demonstration of the gospel. And they're both two sides of the same gospel coin. There's a Quaker aphorism, and I've heard it twice this week, so I need to share it. It keeps coming up, so I'm going to include it here. A man walks into a Quaker service and everyone's sitting in silence. Well, he doesn't really know what to do. So he asks one of the leaders, he says, when does the service start? And the leader quietly says, service starts when the meeting ends. And I think that is so true that for many of us, we're focusing on learning the right things, but there is an aspect of living it out. What does the gospel look like in real time? What does it look like to be so loved that it just flows out of you to your neighbor? And I mean, I'm just, I've been mauling over so many things that you've said, like when you quoted Brian Stevenson, who said, it's hard to hate someone up close. And you talked about this idea of the deserving poor. And sometimes people can see people in poverty or those who are experiencing homelessness, those who are unhoused as people who just lack a work ethic or lack education or lack fill in the blank. But one thing I learned from you years ago was you said one of the leading causes of homelessness in the country is not a lack of work ethic. It's trauma. Oh, without question. Without question. I mean, and trauma, trauma, trauma is the single unifying characteristic when it comes to homelessness. In my book, I, I, I kind of finish it out by, by talking about how homelessness is I describe it as the ocean where all rivers and streams of injustice pool when they're left unchecked and undeterred. And so it's, it's sort of the landing spot for people, whether it's the foster care system, whether it's human trafficking, whether it's mass incarceration, whether it's systemic racism, all of those things pool when you don't check them, you don't interfere with them. You just let them run their course. They run to homelessness. So there's this idea of like, what is the unifying factor? What is it? What is the leading cause of homelessness? Well, well, we now advocates in the progressive world, which again, I, I don't disagree with in some ways would say, well, duh, homelessness is a housing problem. Give me, if you're homeless, give them a home and they're no longer homeless, the, the, which is true to some extent. The problem is, is that it's not as simple as that when it comes to the trauma that people have experienced that led to their homelessness. And so oftentimes the housing can be instrumental or is instrumental in helping rebuild and focus on the trauma. It's hard to focus on your trauma when you're surviving day to day. Right. So you need a place to secure, to stabilize for sure. But there is a traumatic element, like the 13 year, like I said, like that 13 year old boy who got kicked out of his home. You can give him a home but if you don't give them the ability to process that trauma, you're not actually going to have significant progress over the course of his life. But finding housing, that, that's easier. That's easier than pacing with well, someone. That's depends easier. on what city you live in. Well, that is true. That is true. When I remember talking to a friend that I made, he was, he was living basically on 110th Street in an old doorway of a cathedral there. And he had made it all, you know, nice. And he made it homey. And I think for a season, he had been in a pretty big street gang. He had seen a lot of stuff, missing most of his teeth. Some people could be intimidated. But at the time, I was walking with the person I was dating at the time, and she had a dog. And I wish humans could be more like dogs in a sense, because dogs don't care about your socioeconomic background. 
They just love you for being there. Yeah. And this dog runs up and he goes, puppy, puppy. And so all of a sudden, I'm seeing this guy on a weekly basis. Then I'm talking to this guy almost on a daily basis. And he starts telling me about his housing situation. And he says, hey, Raleigh, guess what? I said, what? And he goes, I finally got into Section 8. I'm like, that's amazing. How long have you been waiting? He goes, eight years. So some people think, well, if these people just work harder, they'll get housing. But then the flip side of that is housing may meet one need, but there's still other needs. Just like those of us who may have more privilege, we have a multiplicity of needs. And we actually... With our privilege, we are enabled to get those needs cared for. And if we don't, it's just because we don't want to. And it's interesting, with the, within the human trafficking space, I remember when I first got started, we were told that there was a lack of beds in aftercare centers. So a lot of people were like, well, let's, we'll just provide beds. And it was a noble cause. But that wasn't really putting a, a ding in the problem because it, it wasn't addressing the problem. It was just addressing beds. And, and that's not the only need. That's like a tiny sliver. Well, the, the, so I'm friends with Deborah Paget. She's a, a, a social work professor at NYU. And she wrote the book housing first, like literally the book that, wow. And she was on our podcast as a, we have, we have a podcast at city relief called uh, nobody chooses homelessness. And she was telling, and it's one of the things she says, and I just will, I will keep saying this till I'm, you know, Till I'm in the ground, but housing first does not mean housing only. Right. And this is a thing where, you know, our politics and our and our our prejudices and our assumptions, assumptions about people get in the way of progress and, and solutions. Because people think, oh, well, if we just you know, it's it's housing first is bad because look, we've done housing first and we've have all these people in the streets. For those who don't know, housing first is a philosophy that basically says with homelessness, you provide a house before you provide treatment or before you provide yeah. employment. The housing is not conditional on your progress. It's actually the prerequisite for your progress. So now there's more conservative and, and traditional approaches to homelessness is more of a staircase model where as you take steps to improve your situation, you move up the staircase. So this is why like drug treatment programs sometimes will require certain things before you get in, like you'll start off in a congregate sort of dorm style. But if you stick in there, you obey the rules, you don't relapse, then you get moved up to a better situation. That's sort of this incentivized process. Now, I'm, I, I think there's room for both. Personally, I'm one of those people that says like, like I'm a pragmatist. There are people who benefit from that treatment first and that staircase model. They, they are out there, but then there are others who don't. And so for me, it's frustrating when I hear these sort of polarizing conversations about this way is the right way or this way is the right way. And I'm going, man, like that way might be the right way for somebody. There we it need, is. We need both. Yeah. And like, instead of fighting each other and trying to like compete with each other, why don't we just agree that there's different ways to offer different solutions for di different circumstances. But just this idea of housing first being only how, like that's the criticism. Oh, well, you just get a drug addict in an apartment and then they're just going to overdose in that apartment. Well, that's not entirely true, first of all. Data doesn't show that that happens generally. But even if it was the case, the point is that you can give the person a house or an apartment 
but they still need community. They still need purpose. There it is. They still need value. They still need to get. So like there's still process that needs to be done. The work is not done when you get them in an apartment. The work is just beginning. And I think a lot of us who haven't experienced that, we don't know what it's like to be on the streets. We don't know what it's like to fear to go to sleep because we're afraid of being rolled and someone stealing what little we have. It's very easy to think in these black and white boxes of, well, if we just give someone housing, they'll be better. And I love how you say it's housing first, not housing only. A friend of mine, Taylor Field, he is the pastor of Graffiti Church or was the pastor of Graffiti Church for years. He would say that we must meet the need first and then have a relationship with people, get to know people because everyone has some presenting need. But what I've learned is that your presenting issues are not always your prevailing ones. And so people may show an image of, wow, this person, their, their issue is that they don't have a house. Well, let's get them a house. Well, then get them a house and you realize, or they realize they're like, I could use some, some job training or I'm still trying to shake some pain that I experienced. And they may, it may take years to come to that point. But for all of us, you know, the things that people see, that's not the deepest thing that we're dealing with. And it's sometimes that thing that's that core pain or hurt or suffering or trauma, it could be driving everything else. So it's driving our drug use. It's driving our exploitative behavior. It's, yeah, there's way more than meets the eye. Well, and going back to our original conversation, like about the dynamic of poverty in developing world versus poverty in suburban America, the difference really, again, is that when you're living in suburban America, when you have the privilege of a home, you actually have the privilege of hiding your stuff. So like another thing I, t- I talk about in my book is that if you're, you know, a drunk guy walking out of Madison Square Garden at 10 p.m. and urinating on the sidewalk, the, you might be a Rangers fan. You might be a homeless guy. Yeah. The, the, the different, But the problem is, is that no one's trying to pass laws criminalizing the behavior of the Rangers fan. <laughs> like, so there's this dynamic of... of and they might want to consider that because yeah. Rangers fans get really rowdy, man. I've been on a train <laughs> with those guys and I'm like... At what point do we call this a riot? Like this is, and they're just, they're into it. I mean, the New York Rangers, God bless, I, I'm, a, I'm a fan, but it can get dicey on that train after a game. But, but it, and it reveals this, again, this idea that if you have means, you are able to hide your yeah. stuff. You are able to contain, which is why, again, the title of my book, Neighbors With No Doors, is this idea of when we have a doorway, when you have a door to hide behind, a door that locks, that you can pull shut behind you, you are given the choice, the dignity of, deter- of, of determining what you share with whom. Whereas if you're in the street, everything you do, everything you say, everything you have is on display for the world. So there's a vulnerability to that. That again, I think in some cases, like going back to the poverty discussion is, like sometimes that actually develops like some of the, uh, there's a, there's a, there's a book called, oh, what's it called? I'm going to butcher it. I'm, I knew this always happens. I can't ever remember the, oh, Poisonwood Bible by Barbara Kingsolver. That's about a missionary family in, in, in Africa. So I, I, I read that and I resonated with a lot of it. But one of the things she, there's a nickname for one of the, the kids and one of the characters where it, it means, she says it means truest truth. They refer to this daughter, this daughter as, as Benny or like truest truth. And there's a dynamic to people who are in the street, people who are in poverty, people who are struggling to survive where 
they have to live out their truest truth in front of everybody, which takes away the facade of control, of power, of manipulation, of self, like of worth. They, they don't have the luxury of that. Whereas if you're in the suburban America, if you have means, if you have wealth, you can hide. And the problem with hiding is that it's just that you, you, you're not your truest truth. You're not living your truest self. You, you lack this. There's an integrity that's missing. Yeah. And so when I've experienced people in the street, I've experienced people with integrity. Absolutely. And that that integrity is, 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 is wealth. That's, that's a wealth of integrity in, in people who are suffering from poverty. And not only can you hide in the suburbs, but you can also hide from others who are not like you. Like in a city environment, those experiencing extreme vulnerability are, like you say, on display for everyone to see. But in a suburb, they might be on the edge of town. They might be in the trailer park. They might be in the public park. They might be behind the Walmart. In my hometown, there was a village of those who were unhoused, a tent village right behind Walmart. No one knew about it until something pretty terrible took place. And some of that is people finding the outskirts. But I'd be remiss if I didn't say that I think sometimes we push people to the outskirts so we don't have to see them. See, that's the thing you can't do in a city. You have to face reality in a city. In a major city like New York, at least, you, you see it. You can't turn a blind eye to it. You have to choose to respond to it. And, you know, as we're talking about this kind of balance between this living with privilege and then this experience of poverty, you'd mentioned earlier a lens of empathy. Unpack that for me. What does that mean? What does it mean to live with a lens of empathy? For, for me, I'll tell you what it means for me. For me, it means every person that I meet in the street, I have to look at as though they were my child, hmm. like, like that, that they're my family member. They're, so I had this revelation a few years ago, and I've been training my team with this, with this story. I almost, I don't know if I, include, I can't even remember if I included it in my book or not, but I, it's a pretty kind of dark story. So I, I don't know if I kept it or not, but just this idea that like, my, I have a daughter, she's 11 years old. I have a son who's nine, but I had this re revelation a while back. Like what would happen if my daughter at the age of 13 lost both of her parents? What would happen if my wife and I passed away suddenly in an accident of some kind or whatever? At the age of 13, she would be thrust into a world where she would have very little control, very little she would have to live with people who were not her parents. Right. She would have to go to a new school, probably. She would have to make new friends. She would have to probably find a new therapist and then a the new, like it would, it, maybe she would end up getting swept up. And those years are tumultuous for any, anyone, you know, 13 to 15, those are important years where a lot of us get messed up. But without the safety net of, of parents who love her, who are supporting her, she could end up in the streets of New York. Yeah. That's a very real possibility. It happens every day. Yeah. Kids running away from their homes, getting on a bus and going to Port Authority and getting swept up into all kinds of things happens every day. Absolutely. So it could happen to her. And then my next thought was, how would I want my outreach organization to serve her if she was the one walking up the sidewalk and, in, and, and meeting my team? If it was her, what would I, would I want them just to give her a cup of soup and a bread and a pat on the head? Good luck. I hope they say a prayer for you. Like, like, would that be adequate as her father? Right. The simple answer is no, no, no way. I would be, I would, if I was in heaven watching, you know, this, this, this dynamic play out and I watched my little girl 
walk up to my outreach that I used to lead. You know, I used to be the CEO of this organization. I watched her walk through and I didn't see a single person engage her as a human and say, Eden, how can we help your life get better? If I didn't see that, if all I saw was this transactional experience of here's a cup of soup, here's a prayer, here's a a pair of socks, you know, and then she goes on and walks away back to her life of trauma, addiction, loneliness, trafficking, whatever, I would be screaming from the heavens, like, what on earth? Like, what, what have I done? And then the next thought is, okay, well, that's everybody we see. That's everybody we see. That's someone's little girl. That's someone's little boy. That's some, and at the very least, the Bible, if you have a Christian lens, you know, for a fact, according to Matthew 25, where Jesus says, whatever you have done to one of the least of these brothers, brothers and sisters of mine, you have done it unto me, which means that every single opportunity, when we see someone in the street, we are seeing someone who is Jesus's family. And so how much more does God stand up in heaven in that position and say, come on, do something. Don't just let them walk past. Don't just Treat. Now, again, there's free will. God gives us, I believe, in free will. So, like, if you engage that person and they tell you to kick rocks and they're not in a place to receive what you're offering, that's okay because God gives us that choice too. God gives us the choice to reject him and reject, like, we have that ability. So, why would it be any different for us as we engage people in the street or engage people? And you're honoring their autonomy in that honoring moment. Honoring their you're, autonomy. Yeah. And it's interesting because I love this aspect of viewing someone as if they were your family. Because I think when you do that, it flips the whole thing on its head. I mean, I remember preaching on the Good Samaritan. It was a good sermon, man. I felt really good about myself. And I'm walking out and I'm coming out of the subway and there's this guy, right? He's like, can I have a dollar? 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 He didn't need a dollar as much as he needed a marketing rep because it wasn't working. And I just walked past, but then I started feeling this kind of overwhelmed heaviness. And I was like, I think I need to talk to him. So I turn around, I'm like, here's a dollar. He's like, man, I'm not going to get a sandwich with a dollar. And I said, it's like that. And he's like, it's like that. And I said, all right, then come on in with me. I'm like, what do you want? I'm like, I'll get whatever. And that's a, it's a dicey thing to do because sometimes people will walk out with a party slug. Sure. You know, they'll, I had a person once, they had a pomegranate and I'm like, put down the pomegranate. You know, it's like, for some reason, grace only extends so far for me. Because when people start picking up pomegranates, I get, I get a little nervous. But no, seriously, I'm sitting there and I'm like, get whatever you want. He's like, can I get two drinks? I'm going to get two drinks. It's like, it doesn't matter. And I'm not saying I'm the hero of this situation. What I noticed was we walked out, he's eating a sandwich, and most people would have just walked away. But for some reason, he starts asking me and my friend about us and very inquisitive. And then we start asking about him and he's telling me all these life stories. And I had this moment where he just reminded me of my dad, like absolutely reminded me of my father. And then by the end, he's inviting me to a barbecue for 4th of July. And like, I got his number, he got mine. And I walked away changed because I felt like I had been loved. It wasn't like, oh, Raleigh, look at him doing good, buying people food. No, that was really inconsequential to the situation. I got way more, but it was like, it was almost, I don't know. It was like, yeah, I didn't even want, I was reluctant to even help the person. But then I walked away feeling helped and loved and encouraged. And this is someone that I got to know and got to see at different times in New York City. 
But I love that, like so many of us, you'd mentioned, you know, if someone said to your daughter, how can we help your life get better? So many of us view helping our unhoused neighbors from kind of a top down. I'm going to condescend to your situation and help you. When in that question, you're presupposing that we're asking the person who's going through it, what do you need? What do you want? What would your ideal life look like? What are your dreams? That's empowerment. It's a key. It's a key that opens so many doors. And even to your point about the food, I love that you brought that up because, I mean, I'm just thinking again about my daughter, right? I don't give my daughter carte blanche to order whatever she wants, whenever she wants. Are you kidding? Like, I'm walking in with my daughter. I love my daughter. I would step in front of traffic for my daughter. But if we're in the store and she's like, hey, I want to get this, I want to get that, I want to get that. I'm like, no, I'm not pick one thing kiddo like that's like so like there's even a dynamic of love that is not just just because you love someone through the lens of that doesn't mean you just give them like a blank check so there's a there's also a dynamic i think when we think about homeless folks particularly because we are so uncomfortable because we're so we don't know what to do we don't know how to engage we sometimes end up over our skis yeah because because we set ourselves up in these situations where i don't like, does grace mean I give this person my entire 401k? No. Like, if someone asks you for money, you can say no. That's w- with while still loving that person. It's possible. Well, and I had just finished reading Tim Keller's book, Generous Justice, where he talks about grace gives. Yeah. And so. You no, know, not critiquing what you did. No, 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 no. <laughs> but and so I had read that and I was like, I'm just going to do this. And I still do that to some extent. But now I keep my eyes open. Because I I turned away. Dude had a party sub. His wife had a pomegranate. They had this big two liter. And I was like, and at I mean, they were running it up. And it was almost like, I think grace, by virtue of what it is, is something that is to be taken advantage of. Of course. But in that moment, I was like, everything in me was like, put down the pomegranate. You know, and I think we should give freely. But I love the idea of keeping our eyes open, like you're saying, like, there are things that if the person grabs something that's really unhealthy for them, like maybe we walk through and say, like when people say, do you have any money? Sometimes I say, no, I don't have any money to give. I may have money in my wallet, but I don't want to disempower someone. And I'm not letting myself off the hook either. Well, well and my point would be this, and this is something that I try to train people to do, to think about with this whole topic, which I think is such an important one, especially today with the way homelessness is growing in our country. There's no one size fits all. Correct. There's no, and so every case is different. Every situation and the Holy Spirit, let's, let's, let's like also, yeah, let's, the Holy Spirit also, we need to give the room to the Holy Spirit to actually like prompt us and lead us to do things specifically for people in specific moments. So like there are times like when I I have done the exact same thing, get whatever you want, because I felt compelled Right. In that moment, this is what I'm supposed to do. And I tell volunteers all the time, I tell people all the time, if God is leading you to do something for someone in the street, do it. Don't, don't blame, and don't like blame me for disobeying God. Like, like I can just see someone like, oh, I'm feeling prompted by the spirit to like buy this person whatever they want. But you know what? I read in Josiah's book that boundaries are healthy and I don't No, Like, yes, boundaries are healthy. Every, I, I stand by everything I wrote in my book. At the same time, the Holy Spirit desert, has complete veto power over any best practice. And it's a case by case basis. It's a basis. case by case basis. 
So if we are in tune to the Holy Spirit and what God is leading us to do, hopefully we will be able to find those moments where we can act in radical obedience, where we are changing people, where we're acting with extravagant grace. But then there are times where the Holy Spirit says, no, this one's on your call. And I think one of the key things to to know as you're caring for your neighbors experiencing homelessness is that your motivation matters. If you're just throwing money at someone just because you don't want to deal with them, you need to check that. You need to ask yourself some hard questions because what would it look like if you gave that person a relationship? I know some people, they'll be like, you know what, I'm going to go get a sandwich. You want a sandwich? And you sit and talk. I mean, I had that conversation when I was an elder at a church. I walked by and this person was asking for for money and I just, I kept walking and the person says, do you not like black people? I turned around and I'm like, I was like, what, what? Because I was tuned out. And the person's like, oh, I just said that to get your attention. And I was like, well, you you got it. Congratulations. Yeah, you totally got it. Nailed it. it, But it was such a life-giving conversation because I'm like, hey, do you want to go get something to eat? Like, you seem like an interesting person. Like, that is a heck of a way to get someone in New York to turn around and because, you know, we can be so driven. And we just had this phenomenal conversation before I went to church and I bought him something, you know, but what he gave me, it was, it was great. Like we talked about faith. We talked about life. We talked about our own vulnerabilities. It was, we were both very honest. And I think when you can have conversations with people who are experiencing extreme vulnerability that you might not have with people who are hiding and people who can hide what they're going through. And it will teach you a ton about the reality of what's actually happening in the world. And so, Josiah, what are three pieces of advice that you would give people who want to learn this balance of engaging people who are experiencing homelessness or intense poverty but are also living in a position of privilege. Like what are three pieces of advice you would give us? The, the first thing I would say is, is start where you are with what you have. You don't need to travel right. to, to do this. There, there are people all around you. Yeah. It starts by simply engaging with the person who's in front of you with right. compassion and love. So that's the first thing. Start right where you are with what you have. You don't have to be wealthy. You don't have to, like I some of the most incredible outreach people I've ever met are actually exist or are still homeless themselves. So you don't have to have it all together to start doing this. The second thing I would say is be intentional at creating connections. So like by when I say creating connections, I mean like, again, when you engage with somebody, you, you engage in a way that leads to something else. Find out something specific about that person. Find out what, they're, what they've tried, what their life has been like. Find, ask questions. Be Practice curiosity so that you can then engage with connectivity. And then the last thing I would say is remember that homelessness is a very complex and, and you know, often daunting thing. So it's really important to break it down into bite-sized chunks. And, and find your, find like, so I'll put it this way. One of my favorite quotes is by a guy named Frederick Buchner, who says that your calling is where the world's deep hunger and your deep gladness meet. Wow. And so I would say you don't have to be like, maybe you're an introvert and you're not comfortable talking to a stranger. That's fine. There are, there, that doesn't, ex- it doesn't absolve you 
from in, from doing something. Maybe you're an extrovert and all you want to talk to everybody, but you can't think, you know, you can't think systematically or strategically. Fine. But find a specific area of of engagement that lines up with your passion, your values, your what you have to give. I think of the when Jesus multiplied the bread, the, you know, the fish and the loaves, he asked the child, what do you like, what do you have? So start with where you are with what you have, be intentional. And then, like I said, you know, create these connections for people so that you can be the v- you can be the the bridge between the person that you're trying to engage and the resource that they need and and hopefully the transformation that God has in store for both of you. I was training some church leaders on how to better love their neighbors experiencing homelessness here in the city. And one person came up to me and he, you know, debriefed me and kind of critiqued me a little bit and he goes, "Yeah, you gave us a lot to think about, but one thing you you didn't help us with." And I said, well, "Okay, what was that?" And he goes, you didn't tell us how to talk to people who were experiencing homelessness. You didn't tell us how. And I said, oh yeah, I didn't. And he, he's like, yeah. And I'm like, I didn't because you talk to them like you talk to anybody else because they're human. So if you talk to someone, you're like, hey, what's your name? My name is, start there. Hey, I, I see that you have a dog. What's the dog's name? Find things that interest them, but also... I love kind of what you just said is work out of who you are. What are your passions? Who do you know yourself to be? And just be you with other people and bring you the gift of you to other people so that you can have a relationship and get to know them. And I mean, because your neighbor doesn't have to have four walls and a roof to have value. And you may not even find that value in the first conversation. And and so I would also the last the other you asked me for three I'm going to give you a fourth one uh, yeah. don't don't set the bar too high I mean really I, I feel like what happens inevitably is people want to do something they want to knock it out of the park on the first swing they want to see that person they want the before and after picture you know they want the picture of the guy on the sidewalk with the grocery cart and the big beard and then they want to have the picture of the guy in the suit like clean shaven and smiling at the masses like stop it. Just stop it. Like, that's not your job. That's not your responsibility. Your responsibility is love that person as they are where they are, which means that you can lower the bar in yourself and you can say like, it's not my job to save this person. Like, yeah, I loved how you put it. There's already a savior. I'm not him. Yeah. Um, So just lower the bar. Like, so don't, you don't have to do everything, but dang it, do something. And that is the note to end on. You don't have to do everything, but dang it, just do something. Josiah, thank you for joining me today. Oh, it's my pleasure, Raleigh, as always. If you are interested in more conversations like this one, buy my book, Vulnerable Rethinking Human Trafficking. If you want bonus episodes, as well as a plethora of other resources, become a paid member at lmpg.org for $10 a month. You will get access to our bonus podcast, More Mercy, where we dive deeper. Also, don't forget to hit that subscribe button and leave MercyCast a five-star review. We want to hear from you, so you can email us at info at mercycast.com. Till next time. Have mercy on yourselves and each other.